I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. Jason Blackwell is the author of Battle to the Top. He's a former British commando who turned executive coach, and he focuses on leadership, communication, and emotional intelligence. His story of how he's taking some of the lessons that he learned in the highest levels of combat and how you can translate that into everyday skills that you can use as a manager, as a leader, as a worker. So for example, you have to set the example. Don't be late. You have to be respectful in how you dress. You have to set the standard. Communication. Look after your people. These are all things that he learned in his commando life, in his commando training, and he's applying it as an executive coach who focuses in the finance world, but also for anybody who is working or managing. And also, particularly, we talk a lot about how women can use this to step up and to step into their game and use their voice and be more effective as leaders in the workplace. Jason's super cool. His company is called The Hatwell Group. And also, if you buy the book, 100% of the proceeds go to veterans' charities. So something to think about. I'm going to put the link in the podcast page. You went from being in the Navy, turned those skills and experience into a career pivot to become an executive coach. And you now have your own business, the Hatwell Group. And I really want to understand how how did you do that? Because a lot of the women we work with are in a career, place of career transition, and now you're an author, and you're providing a real roadmap for people to think about leadership, to think about communication, think about how you manage people, which coming from your background and then your corporate experience makes a, a huge amount of success and a huge amount of sense in terms of like what you have to teach people. Yeah, I describe it, and I'm sure you and the rest of your listeners can relate to it. I I entered myself what I imagine many of your listeners enter, which is, I call it the pivot zone. And whether it's for personal or professional reasons, you enter this zone where you just want something different. Maybe the challenge is not right. It could be pressure from home, any, any number of reasons. But you enter this pivot zone. And when I'm coaching people, and of course, I went through it myself, you have to really look at what you enjoy doing. So quite often it comes down to a a look at what motivates you. And in the world of finance, of course, when I ask people what motivates you, the roll off the tongue answer is money. I do this job because I get paid extremely well. I never let that lie. I always go one or two levels deeper. And what you start to uncover is people enjoy fixing problems, being strategic, focusing on the big picture or getting involved in the nuts and bolts, whatever it might be. And then they suddenly have a eureka moment when they realize the money is actually following on from that. It just so happens that finance is your way of going in somewhere and solving problems, whether it's a company not performing well or you're trying to improve how your hedge fund trades equities and stock market type stuff. 
And actually, you could be doing that anywhere. It just so happens that you're doing it inside financial services. So myself, it won't surprise you to hear, I coach people on leadership topics and things like that. So I just got to a place where I wanted to set my own agenda, have a lot more autonomy, make my own decisions. So I'd been thinking about it for a while. I was in that pivot zone. Luckily for me, I was working with a phenomenal woman called Hattie Bollerman, who was also at my firm as well. And she is a remarkable executive coach. The two of us got talking and we realized we were both in that zone. So we took, I don't like to use the word brave too much, but we took the brave decision to hand in our notice at the same time. We didn't let any clients know we were going to do it. We wanted a clean slate. We handed in our notice. And the next day, we started Hatwell Group. So that's how I went through that journey. A lot of self-reflection, trying to think about what my own motivations were, and then setting up Hatwell Group as the conduit to do that. How do you recommend that people figure out what their motivations are? I actually had this conversation on the street yesterday with a woman who is a successful journalist who has been doing it for 30 years. And she said, it's such a weird feeling to turn 50 because I'm like, is this what I just, is this what I'm doing? Is this what I did with my life? Am I supposed to do something different? And there's that feeling of you could wind up in finance or in some career that you're just doing and you're doing it because maybe you're good at it or you need the money or you, it's just what you do. Life takes over. And then you wake up and you're like, is this, is this actually what I was supposed to do? Is there a reason why I do this? Like, where does that that introspection and motivation, how do you get people to look inside? Because I find that sometimes people are very scared of shining that spotlight. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is, and, and I think we all realize this, that we as human beings, and quite often we don't like looking at ourselves as if we're another animal, but that's all we are. And one thing I discovered over 16 years of coaching is human beings don't really like change. There aren't that many of us that go, you know what, I'm going to change jobs every three months. It's going to be exciting. We don't like it. We don't enjoy that inherent change. So some of it might just be a natural point where, I mean, quite honestly, sometimes it's forced upon you. And I'm sure members of your organization have found themselves out of work or, or it's, the change has been a necessity. I was lucky and fortunate, I guess, that I made my own decision. And I've done that twice. I, I did that when I left the military, so I can really relate to it. But I think when it comes down to answering your question about what motivates you, you've got to be hard on yourself. Again, we are a little bit lazy. So it's easy to say, I like working three days a week. That's what motivates me. I like getting paid well. That motivates me. Really work hard at it. What do you enjoy every day in your last role? What if you're not enjoying it anymore? What did you enjoy? And it's really thinking about what those triggers are that makes you get up in the morning and look forward to doing it. And then you have to start analyzing, okay, where can I get that from somewhere else? So I, I use the example for me, I wanted autonomy. I was at a stage where I thought the previous firm just maybe could have improved a few things. And I myself wanted to go off and do a couple of extra things. And I was held in by their parameters and I didn't want that anymore. So for me, it was a natural thing to go off and find it, but you've really got to work hard. And quite honestly, it takes a little bit of courage. I talk about that in the book because I went through it myself. I was in the military. I was a I was an officer. I was a lieutenant in a Navy commando unit. That's all I'd ever wanted to do. And I can honestly say 
there wasn't a, a day that I went into that unit and didn't have a smile on my face. I absolutely loved it. But I just, again, had entered one of those pivot zones. I'd just come back from Iraq. I was part of the invasion, the war. It was high tempo. I'd just turned 30 at the time. I'd just finished my in-service degree. All these things came together. And I actually looked 10 years ahead. It's not a bad way of doing it. Jenny, I looked 10 years ahead and I thought, who do I want to be in 10 years? Do I still want to be doing this? Or is it time for a challenge? And that's why I ended up leaving the military. And actually, I initially jumped into your old world. I went When I left the Navy, I went straight to journalism school. And I did that for six months, got a diploma in England, which you need to enter that workforce for credibility reasons, gave it a go and realized it wasn't for me. There was bits about it I didn't enjoy. Quite frankly, I wasn't very good at it. And me neither. Yeah, that's okay. I disagree. I think some of your stuff, it's good. <laughs> that's, that was one of the reasons I was like, well, I'm not really doing it. I'm not really that great at it. So. Yeah. yeah, well, I, I promise you I was two or three levels worse. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I enjoyed aspects of it, but it just never sat with me and it wasn't the right thing. And again, with hindsight, I can look back and say, what was I missing? And again, those triggers there, those motivation things weren't there for me. So again, it was time to reset. So I went through that journey straight. Leaving the military was certainly one of those transitional pivot periods. I did it again within a year because I knew it wasn't right for me. And, and sometimes that's what it takes. Do you find when you're coaching, now you specifically coach within the finance world, but it doesn't really matter what world you're in, you know, business is business, people are people, you know, the terms are a little different, but when you're coaching people who maybe are looking to leave or are unhappy trying to find what it is that's blocking them, what are the main areas that you find are the most common things that stop people, either get them stuck or get them all kind of like wrapped up in their head and not able to achieve, which is the, you know, the piece of your book. It's like about achieving, becoming an achiever. What stops people from becoming an achiever? I promise you I try and avoid cliches. But if there's one cliche I will use, it's people don't quit jobs. They quit their managers. Hmm. And when I talked to last week, I was coaching um, a pretty large group at a, a pretty large hedge fund. And these are all middle managers. And we were talking about their career trajectory and, and what they've done. And I always want to find out from them who's the best boss they've ever had? What are the things that make that person so good? And of course, I'm not a therapist, but they normally find it really enjoyable to also think about the worst boss they've ever worked for. And to a person, whenever I do that exercise, the room has quit the job with the bad boss. And you will put up with a lot of political type stuff that you can't control inside a company if your boss has your back. So you get the counterbalance of that. So usually when I'm talking to somebody who is unhappy, maybe not feeling supported, maybe doesn't have the right level of motivation to be at their very best, it usually had something to do with leadership, a boss who's not respecting them, not letting them have autonomy, not having a voice, things like that. So that's pretty much the common factor, the boss, the manager, the leader, whatever you want to call it. I would assume that a lot of those people are also managing others. Yes. So yeah. how do you get people to become better managers? 
if you're in a leadership position, what are the most important things to think about so that people don't quit on you, making your job then harder? Um, and when everybody has a boss. So if you're the boss, how do you think about teaching people to become the best version of themselves? So with my background being military, I'm also from Northern England. Um, I like to think of myself as a simple person. So I always try and keep it as simple as possible. When I'm coaching a large room of people, it's nearly always the case that I have the lowest IQ in the room. But between me and you, I normally have a level above of common sense. So I kind of... that's Emotional I, intelligence. Definitely have emotional intelligence. By the way, in my book, one of my chapters is on emotional intelligence. And I... I don't shy away from saying this. In my old military days, even when I first came over to New York in 05, I don't think I had a lot of EQ. And that one topic alone has probably been the biggest game changer in my own life and has enabled me to be hopefully a pretty successful coach. So that's been a self-reflection and a journey I've gone on myself. When it comes to leadership, so when I say I keep it simple, I always think there's three core pillars to good, solid leadership. The first one is you individually set the example. And I think a lot of people forget that. What do I mean by that? If you are running a team and you are walking into meetings five minutes late, sitting down and saying, let's go, you're telling them it's okay to be late. How you turn up, how you dress, how you are respectful to other people. I always say to the groups and individuals I'm coaching, you need to get hold of that very quickly because you set the standards. So there's always a huge dose of this magical word I like to use called accountability. Hmm. So the first pillar is you set the standard. The second that. part is communication. And nearly everything inside leadership comes back to communication, delegating to people, giving people feedback, holding difficult conversations, finding out what motivates somebody. That is all about communication. And I think technology is supposed to help, but I don't think we've really got a hold of it fully yet. So communication is certainly a major thing that I work on with people. And then the last part is look after your people. And if I go way back in time, and I don't want to age myself, but when I was going through the British commando training course, the Green Beret course, which is what you get awarded when you're commando trained in England, that is absolutely beaten into you on day one. Your guys come before you, and they need to know that you have their back. So when you look at those three pillars, there's always a lot of crossover between them. But you set the standard, communication, and look after your people. Those are the three, in my view, core pillars of good, solid leadership. I love that. You also use a lot of acronyms. Can you give us a few? Because I did read about one, which was WAIT. Love that Why one. Why am I talking? Yeah. And yeah. I think that's great. And as a formally trained journalist, I'm sure that you also were taught, don't fill silences, because that's where you learn things, to just listen. So why am I talking is a great example. Like, is there something you're saying? I'll give you the insider track because I know you specifically work with females. This isn't usually a, a female-driven acronym. <laughs> no, I don't think so. You're right. <laughs> correct. <laughs> um, I work in finance. That's the area I coach in. I myself have never been in finance, but that's become my niche over the years. So I only coach people in finance. 
And I can't tell you how many people I have to use that acronym with. A lot of the people I work with, specifically in finance, are very technical, they're very academic, and they want to tell you everything that's going on. So you can't turn around and say, I didn't have the information. So that acronym came about because I'm trying to get people to be just quicker and get to the point. And once you make the point, you've made the point. I always say to people, the more you talk, the more you're actually diluting your point. So that's where that comes from. So I get them to write it on notepads. I get them to put it on post-its and shove it up on the screen. Just make your point. Once you've made it, stop talking. Why am I talking? It's a beautiful acronym. I always think the best acronyms actually tell you what it's doing as well. So wait. What are some other examples? Ones you like? One I use quite a lot, and you can use it in the book. I use it in a couple of different places. I use it in the chapter on communications, mainly focused on electronic communications. But I also use this acronym when I am delegating to people myself, because I have a small team as well. And the acronym is ACT, A-C-T. Again, it does exactly what it says on the tin. Let's act on this email. Let's act on this delegation. This one I love. and. It stands for A, action. What are you actually asking somebody to do? So if you're going to send an email, it has to have action. And you yourself need to know what that action is. Because if you don't know, I can guarantee there's almost a 0% chance your audience is going to know. The C part is the one I see missed out most often. Context. Why are you asking for this report, this piece of data, whatever it might be? And if you tell people that, they understand why this is a priority for you or why you need it two hours before a meeting, whatever it might be. So I might say to you, Jenny, I need this data. I have a meeting with Emma at 7 p.m. on Friday, so I need it by 5 p.m. so I have time to review it. Okay, now I have the context. And quite honestly, the context can sometimes be about you. I need you to attend this meeting in my place. I'm a little bit swamped at the moment, and I need to focus on Project Leopard or whatever else I have going on. So the context can be about you. It can be about what's happening in the everyday world and why you need the information. Quite honestly, sometimes it can be about the other person. I want you to go to this meeting, Jenny, because I want you to get more exposure to senior stakeholders. Okay, now I understand why Jason's asking me to go. The why. What's the, the intention behind it? Yeah, and, I get and it. You, and yeah, and if you look at emails that we've sent where there's been inaction, I, I was working um, a few, I think it was late last week with a guy who said to me, I said, when's the last time delegation broke down? And he said, well, I sent this email to a team member and I said, I need this piece of data by Saturday noon. First of all, my alarm bells were going off. Why do you need it on a Saturday? But that's a different discussion that I had with the individual but there was no context to it. I need it by Saturday, 12 o'clock. Well, that's never going to motivate anybody. And there was lots of reasons why he needed it by Saturday lunchtime, but he didn't give that to the individual. So we have the action, the context, as you describe, and the T, common sense, timing. But in the timing, there's actually lots of things happening. When do you need it by? And it could be a short-term project. I need this by tomorrow, five o'clock. Or you might be delegating a major project to somebody, and it might be two months. But in the timing, we want to talk about check-ins. We don't want to become a micromanager. So how often are you and I going to check in every week, every few days? Also, give yourself a fail-safe. So if I need this data by 
Saturday at noon, maybe I'll say to you, and if you know you can't get it to me by Saturday at noon, I need to know by Friday, five o'clock, so I can make other arrangements. So the acronym ACT just gets you thinking about everything you're going to put into an email or when you're delegating to somebody. And if you have all three in place, no promises, but you'll have more chance of success. It makes a lot of sense. I think I could use that in my own emails. Sometimes you send something off and you're assuming that people understand what you're asking or what your meaning is. And it makes sense in my head, but it doesn't mean that it makes sense in your head or how I've said it makes any sense to you. So you're wasting time decoding what I've said. If I made it more clear, it would be more efficient. I appreciate that. Okay, now I want to flip the story a tiny bit and just talk about your experience with or you know, if maybe in the absence of working with women, because I don't know how many women were in the Navy with you or how many women are in finance that you wind up coaching, but this is a company that's built around and by women to help women professionally succeed. And when I think about a lot of the things that you've given as examples and ways in which people can be more effective in the workplace, a lot of the times for women, There's a lot of ingrained fear and different ways in which we're raised in a gendered way to not speak up, to not be very definitive in the things that you're asking for because you could risk you're going to get shot down or you're going to look bossy. You're going to look like, you know, women in leadership get knocks all the time for being presumed to be. I guess, what is it called? Like screechy or or yep. bossy when they're really just doing the same thing or saying the same thing. It's just the tone is very different. Yeah, I mean, I, when I reflect on my, my Navy history, I went to, again, not that I really want to age myself that much, but I went to the British Naval College, which is our officer training college in late 1993. So that place is like the equivalent of Annapolis over here in the States. And when I went, it had only been two years before, I think if that's right, women in the British Navy were allowed to go to sea. So it was new for everybody. I mean, you would go onto a warship to do basic training. And of course, I I spent a lot of time on warships in the subsequent years, but it was all still quite new. There was lots of things that we were ironing out the kinks and everything from it's things we don't really think about, but accommodation and the whole warship was men. And now you have to accommodate 10, 15% females on board. So there was a big transition when I first joined the Navy. I'll be quite honest with you. I, I like to be honest about these things. I think when I joined and probably a lot of the people I joined with were oh, macho guys, right? You're going to go in the military and do all this really cool stuff. Um, women, do we need do we need women at sea? Are they going to be a distraction? I think all those different services went through the same thing. I can tell you very quickly, of course, when you're at the Naval College, the women were some of the best people there, right? And they have a lot of a lot more natural traits for leadership than the men do. That EQ that you talked about, the emotional yes. intelligence and things like that. And I also told you I didn't have very much back then, I, and I I really believe I don't. Over the next few years, of course when they were going through basic trainings, it takes a few years to get to the front line in certain trades. And when I went through commando training in 99, 
the first pilots were just getting to the front line because it takes four years to train a pilot. So they were just getting to the front line. Maybe they were two, three years into that. And I can't tell you how good they were. Actually, I got a message from one of them only a couple of weeks ago. We've stayed in touch. And of course, I have with many of them. And they were just phenomenal pilots. And whenever you climbed in the back of a helicopter and one of the two pilots at the front was one of the uh, one of the females. It was just awesome. And, and quite honestly, if you can do the job, nobody cares. Nobody cares. So I read a lot about the military these days and women and, and people from diverse backgrounds and things like that. In my experience, nobody cares as long as you can do the job. So that was my background into working with females on the front line and things like that. And we had them flying helicopters in Iraq. And of course, a lot of the medics were females, the doctors, people like that. So nothing but the utmost respect and certainly no biases or anything like that. Roll on, I start coaching and you see the difference in the world of finance. And I, I, first of all, I will tell you, times have changed enormously. And my business partner, Hattie, Bolleman. She actually spends a lot of time coaching females who are trying to jump up to the managing director level at an investment bank and places like that. And quite honestly, it usually isn't the women that are the issue. It's the level above, two levels above, and the support network is not there. I myself, of course, coach a lot of females as well. And one of the things that you have to get them to do, and this is Jason being straight talking right now and passing on a bit of advice to the females that are listening is you've got to go after it. No one's going to do it for you. So you've got to work out where you want to be and have those career discussions because it's amazing how many guys I work with at a senior level who will say to me, I just didn't realize she wanted promotion. Now, of course, they have to be accountable for that. And we do coach them to get involved and have those career discussions. But what I'm trying to get across is don't sit there magically assuming it's going to happen for you. You do have to go after it. You do have to say, I want to sit down with you for an hour and talk about the next 12, 24 months and where I want to be. And let them know people aren't mind readers. My guess is when you have this conversation with the women that you're coaching and you tell them that they need to do that, that's a very uncomfortable thing for them to do. Whether it's asking for what they want, claiming their ambition, renegotiating and asking for money or titles. It's just, it's something that is for the majority of women, a real sticky point. And there's a lot of like, fear and insecurity tied up, self-confidence. Even if you're like going to be an MD at a you know bank, people would think that you wouldn't have that inside of you and you still do. So it, has that been surprising to you? And how do you work through it? Yeah, I mean, in the coaching, you know, you're exactly right. It is intimidating, a lot of anxiety around that. That's why they're talking to somebody on the outside of the organization and I tell people I work with, I'm like, a, I don't know, a lawyer or a priest. What you talk to me about stays between us, right? So they they build that trust with you as their coach, and they're very open about it. But it's one of my jobs. And in fact, it might be the most important job as a, an executive coach to get the best out of my people. Almost like a coach in the NBA or NFL or anything like that. It's not your skill set. They've got the skills. 
It's your job to get them to own it and realize that and go forward with a bit of confidence. And then, of course, once you break that barrier down, you might do a bit of role play. Let's role play the conversation. Let's let's get your comfort level ready to have it. And I can tell you, I can't think of a single instance where somebody has had that conversation. And and we're not saying yelling and screaming in a very confident, clear, coherent, really nice way. I want to talk about my career. I don't think I've, in fact, I know I haven't ever had anyone come to me afterwards and say it was a nightmare. They nearly always say the same thing. It feels like a weight off my shoulders. And now I've got a path forward. And that really is the key thing. You're right. We don't want to do it because maybe we're scared of the no or whatever it might be. But the opening chapter of my book is called, so I use an acronym in the whole book. It's the Achiever acronym. That's what I call it. And the A is action. It's time to go. Let's do this. Would you rather be scared of one conversation or be here in two years still in that role? It's time to go after it and have that. So it it does take a bit of courage. I don't hide away from that. A lot of the good things in life do take a bit of courage. And of course, with my old military hat on, I didn't really like jumping out of airplanes, for example, but you go and do it, right? And it's the job. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes those things are the ones that are the most rewarding. So my advice would be plan out what you want to say. Again, you could almost use the ACT acronym again. What am I trying to go after? What's the action I want here? What's the context? Why do I want it? Well, first of all, I deserve it. Um, when do I want to do this? So you and I, as my manager, can get a roadmap of what you think I'm missing. What am I not doing at the moment that's going to stop me getting promoted? And it might be, I don't think you're leading a big enough team. I don't think you've, you own enough projects. Okay, well, let's you and me talk about what projects I can take on. That's what a good conversation is all about. Not bringing the problems. It's not a moaning session. It's going in there with a roadmap of what I want to achieve. I love it. I encourage everyone to go buy Battle to the Top. The proceeds of the book are very generously going to veterans charities. So that is such a lovely thing for you to have done after all the time and effort that you've put into this. And thank you for, I I think you're like the third guy we've ever had on this podcast. So thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom. I think it's really great to have other perspectives and people with different backgrounds who can give their insights into what it's like to coach, work with women and and to help women become the most successful that they can. You know, it's not just about men, it's men and women. Couldn't agree more. Great conversation. Really enjoyed talking to you about it. And uh, again, my final parting advice is to all all the women out there that are pivoting, going through that pivot zone is get after it, right? No one's going to magically do it for you. Own it, get after it. Think about where you want to be in five years, just like you've done with uh, your organization with Gina. Go after it and you'll read the rewards. Be about it. I like that, that you just said that. Go for it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.